Romans chapter 3. Okay, I need you to help me complete this statement. Actually, it's a song, so I think a lot of you will know it. I fought the law and... All right, okay. That's the title of the message tonight. I fought the law and the law won. And we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 3. I'll just cover a little bit of our last time here and then just go right into the uh, new teaching. Verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. It's going to be two to three years before he actually gets to Rome. He's not sure he's going to get there. Why does he want to get to Rome? It's the crossroads of the world. All roads lead into and out of Rome. So he wants to get that message there because he knows it can travel throughout all the known world if he can get the message of the gospel there. Why? Why is this burning passion on Paul's heart to write the most detailed doctrinal letter of all his letters? It's the longest letter that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And in it we have our doctrine, our belief. Why is it is as important today as it was back then? What's the significance of it? Well, there's a lot. There's a tremendous amount. Because Paul knew, just like back then, that through the history of the church, society would be sinful and corrupt and people would be trying to change the gospel of God and water it down. And he knew there was an enemy of men's and women's souls, Satan himself, that would try to twist and dilute the gospel so that people would be confused. And they would not know the truth. And they would be in bondage to their sins. So as we get into Romans 3... Paul is simply saying that the Jew had a lot of advantages simply because they were the chosen people. Everything God did, he did through the Jewish people first. And we talked about how you and I, similar to the Jews, we have God's word. Just think of how many Bibles you might have in your house or a couple in the trunk of your car. We have God's word. And with that comes tremendous responsibility And of course, we're accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ himself for everything he shows us. How we're lifting each other up in prayer and how we're lifting the world up in prayer. The world that he died for. The world that you and I were a part of until we were separated from the world. And separated unto Jesus Christ. In verse 3 it says, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Impatience. What does impatience do to a person whose trust in the Lord? A lot of times, impatience and not having prayers answered can lead to disbelief, can it? You know what I mean? You give up on your prayers because you don't see them answered. But you know what? 
The lack of our faith in a faithful God doesn't change what he's going to do. Think of Noah. What took place in Noah in a hundred years here is Noah was preaching that there was going to be a great flood. Not one convert. Didn't matter that the people weren't faithful. God still was faithful to his word and the flood came. And think of Noah, what he had to be, just like you and I. Did he believe? Did his doubts ever waver? Was he ever in that position to not know if what he heard was true? Verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words, simply meaning proved right when you speak. When it's all said and done, God will be right 100% in everything He's ever told us. And the second part of that is, and may overcome when you are judged. When it's all said and done, God, the perfect judge, will win His case in court. There won't be any doubt. There won't be any critics who can find a flaw because we're talking about the perfect judge, the perfect God, who has all things under control. Even those things we prayed for tonight. Even those situations that are going on. He's got it all under control. It's all wired. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And probably in your Bible, like mine, it says, I speak as a man. Why would Paul put that there? I speak as a man. Because you have to understand that most of the people back here did not believe in Jesus Christ. They were either pagans or Jews. They were either Gentiles or Jews. They either had their own form of idol worship or they were wrapped up in a system of legalism that still permeates churches to this day. I fought the law and the law won. One of the things I want you to examine tonight in your life is how much of the law is still in you. Because when you think of it as human beings, we always work to try to get an outcome. In other words, we put in time and we want to be paid accordingly. If you're an athlete, you, you work out to try to, you expect that the workout will carry over in your performance. The harder you work out, you figure the better your performance is going to be. How much is that in everything we do? We have to be very careful, though, with our spiritual walk with the Lord, with that mentality, right? Think about it. What we put in is what we get out. Well, spending time with the Lord, reading His Word, yeah, that's going to have its dividends. But do you think that going to church or uh, to be seen by other people or 
praying in a group with other people and hoping the pastor or one of the elders notices that you're praying with a group of people. The Bible says you've already got your reward. The acknowledgement of men and women. But we don't want that, do we? We want to do things that we do for one reason. And what is that reason? To glorify our Father in heaven. To be about His business. So Paul takes that parenthesis there and he says, I'm speaking as a man right now. I'm not speaking led by the Holy Spirit as far as when I question God. Who are you and I to question God? Think of the audacity and the arrogance of that. Think of something you make with a piece of clay yelling at you. Why'd you make me this way? Why'd you form me this way? But yet we know that we probably do that sometimes even now that we're following the Lord. Right? We still have those complaints. Paul goes on to say, Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? Remember, God is flawless. He's the perfect judge. Everything's going to be proven sooner or later. Verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? Think of the reasoning behind that. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Should Hitler be glorified because as a result of his reign, people came to know the Lord? Or should the terrorist be excused because they flew into the trade center and there were some people who led other people to the Lord before the buildings collapsed? Or how about Judas? If it wasn't for Judas, he helped Jesus go to the cross. Jesus became crucified for the world because of what Judas did. Or how about Pharaoh? Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. Then he finally let them go. If it wasn't for Pharaoh, they would not have got to the promised land. Think of that reasoning behind those, the Hitlers and the terrorists, Judas and Pharaoh. What kind of reasoning is that? In spite of wickedness and sin, God works. Not because of it. God doesn't work because of sin. God works because of his love and his grace and his mercy. But yet Paul was dealing with people saying that Paul, because Paul just preached forgiveness and salvation through grace, not of works. So the Jewish religion had over 600 rules condensed into the Ten Commandments. Think about that. So they figured if they followed those Ten Commandments, they were going to go to heaven. Not only that, they figured because they were Jewish, they were going to go to heaven. It's the Gentiles that needed to follow the commandments. No, not so. And Paul's going to shatter that thought in this chapter 3. Verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported? And some affirm that we say, 
Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Turn with me to Philippians 3, verses 4, and, 4 to 6. Philippians 3, 4 to 6. Paul, when he's saying, are we better than them, who's he talking about? Was it just the audience that he was addressing in the letter? He was including all the Jewish people when he was saying we. Are we better than them? Who was them? Those were all the non-Jews. So in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, it says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So here was a Pharisee of the Pharisees that was telling the people he was writing to, hey, I'm included with you and with the Gentiles. I'm no special person as a result of being a Jew or a Pharisee. Nor are you or me. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all stand on it. The only thing that might differ is the heights of the people standing there. The fame, the fortune, the stature, doesn't matter. We're all equal at the foot of the cross, Jew or Gentile. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now just with that all under sin, one of the things that Paul is saying is what? The authority, the pull, the slavery of sin. We're all under sin. We're under its authority. We can't get away from it. We were born with the sin nature. You sin because that's who you are. You're sinners. Just like me. Just like Paul. Just like Moses. Just like Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel. Joseph. All of them. Just like you and I. Sinners. All fallen short of God's perfect standard. Remember, the Jews believe that the Gentiles were condemned and that they themselves were saved despite their sins. Understand that as he's writing this letter. That even though they were sinners, Jews, they were saved because they were Jews. Paul is shattering that through the book of Romans. Verse 10. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to go back into the writings of the Old Testament. One of the things we'll cover is that the prophets talked about this. The law talked about this. That God in the Old Testament had things that were being taught in the New Testament concealed. You couldn't see them that clearly. But boy, they jump out of the, off the page once you get into the New Testament. And see, we have that advantage, don't we, as New Testament saints? 
If we have a knowledge of the scriptures, we can go back into the old and see the things that were concealed now revealed in the New Testament. So we're going to see some things from the Psalms and some things from Isaiah and Proverbs in these next several verses. Verse 10, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now those few verses came from the Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Ecclesiastes 7. And I want you to go back up to verse 12 where it says, They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. The word unprofitable comes from the idea of rotten fruit. Good for nothing. You and I are good for nothing. We're rotten, stinking sinners. We saw that in Romans 1 and 2. Whether you feel you're a moral person, whether you're a Jewish person, whether you're a pagan person with no belief in a God, all three fall so far short and are shown to be sinners in the eyes of God the Father, the perfect judge. Verse 13. Then their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. And that's from one of the Psalms, Psalm 5, verse 9. We're starting to see the anatomy of the sinner. How we know other parts of the Scripture, how it talks about the tongue. How it sets ablaze. How much destruction and damage the tongue does. And the slander and the gossip. And we're not talking in the world. We're talking right here in the church. In the churches in America and the churches of the world. The tongue. How it tears down what God is trying to do. The poison of asps is under their lips from Psalm 143 whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness from Psalm 10. Now we go from the head, from the mouth, from the tongue, down to the feet in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood in Proverbs 16. Just think about all the violence in our culture today. There was violence back in Paul's day also. People killing other people. People beating up other people. Think of the gangs today. Think of the abuse in the homes today. The violence that goes on. Verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways from Isaiah. And the way of peace they have not known spoken about in Proverbs. There is no fear of God before their eyes in Psalm 36. And think of that. Why is there no fear of God? And with no fear of God, what does that bring? Lack of understanding. Lack of wisdom, the Bible says. If there's no fear of God. Is there fear of God in America today? Is there fear of God 
in churches today? Is there fear of God in this church today? Is it sporadic? Or do we have a healthy respect and love for the Almighty God who's going to come back one day for us or we're going to go to Him? One or the other is going to happen. Either we're going to Him or He's coming to us. Do we have that healthy respect? Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now remember... The law was in the possession at this time of the Jewish nation. So Paul's going right after the Jewish people right now. That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. To silence every critic. How could anybody say they were keeping the law? Just take the Ten Commandments. How many times have we, you and I, broken those Ten Commandments? Whether it's having an idol before God, taking the Lord's name in vain, dishonoring our, our parents when we were growing up, stealing. Now, maybe you never murdered anybody, but did you ever get angry at someone? Did you ever covet something? I think on all those counts, I'd be guilty. But take heart. Even if you've broken one, you're guilty. Just one. Just one time. So if there's anybody here that's only sinned once in their whole life, first of all, congratulations, because I don't know how you did that. I have no clue how that happened. But whether you have one sin or a million sins, we stand condemned before the Almighty God. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. I'd like to read that one more time. Therefore, by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified. In other words, by keeping that law, nobody can be justified. Why? Because you can't do it. Even Paul says, one of his letters, I do what I don't want to do. Matter of fact, it's in this letter. The things that I know I should do, I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do, I do. Who's going to deliver me from the body of death? And then he says, praise God. In Jesus, I'm set free. But you and I, the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Up on the screen, think about the first sin ever came down when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And think of the first sacrifice, the foreshadowing of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago when God had to kill animals and clothe Adam and Eve in those animal skins. Blood had to be shed. As we know in the Old Testament, it says, without the shedding of blood, 
There's no forgiveness of sins. Now, Adam and Eve could have said, God, I don't want those skins. I like these fig leaves. They're itchy. They're uncomfortable. I got a rash. I want to stay in the fig religion. This is my religion. I found it. I plucked, I plucked those leaves. I put them on. I'm very comfortable in my fig religion. But no, they didn't do that, did they? They were clothed in animal skins that had to be killed first before they became skins, clothing for Adam and Eve. But they accepted God's way instead of their way. You and I are faced with that issue all the time. And as we go through the Old Testament, there's some things up here that took place that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant that I think are very relevant to the study of Romans chapter 3. In the vase is the manna, the bread that fed the Israelites for those 40 years. Think about that. They had manna with their eggs. They had manna sandwiches. Manna for dinner, manicotti. They had all this, all of different forms of manna. But guess what with the manna? They did eat it because they needed nourishment. But they complained. They complained. If it wasn't for God giving them that provision in the desert, they would have died of hunger. Jesus is the bread of life that we partake of. He nourishes us. How much do we complain? Hmm? How much do we complain and take things for granted? Another item is the staff of Aaron. And if you notice, there's a little growth on a little bud there. Now we know Aaron's staff was a miraculous staff used miraculously by Moses and Aaron in the Old Testament. Remember when it was thrown down in Pharaoh's court, turned to a snake, and Pharaoh's Egyptians, um, magicians did the same thing. They were Egyptian magicians. Did the same thing. They threw down their staffs and they became snakes. But remember what happened? Aaron's staff swallowed up the magician's staff. One of the things with the staff that's important, it was a sign of God's authority and miraculous work in the desert, but there was something else that's important too, because just like the manna was nutrition, remember there was also a complaint about it. We see the flesh there too. We not only see God's provision and grace, but we see the rebellion and the complaints of man. With Aaron's staff, there was a man named Korah. Okay, in that whole group of two million people that were led out of Egypt. And what Korah did is he was causing a rebellion among the people. And he said, why do we have to follow Moses and Aaron? Let's do our thing. Follow me. And there was a big dispute. So Moses, through the guidance of God, said, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
There's 12 sons of Aaron, or there's, there's 12 sons of the tribe of uh, Judah. Let me go back, rerun. There's 12 tribes. Each of you take a staff. We'll put it down. We'll check in the morning. And God said the one that is budded is the one who has the authority to lead this nation from a spiritual vantage point. Well, only one budded, and that was Aaron's. So Aaron's was included in here, but the important thing, too, that I want to point out is the flesh comes in again because as a result of not following God's initial leader, Moses and Aaron, there was rebellion in the camp. Thus we have the staff of Aaron that represents God's authority, but also man's rebellion. And finally, we have the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. But remember, this is the second set of commandments. Remember, Moses came down with the first set and the people were having an orgy down around the golden calf. Millions of people forgot about the God who was right up there on the mountain. They could see the fire, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. But right at his feet, they were sinning, just like you and I. Not realizing the presence of God was right there. Right in their midst. How often we forget that God is right in our presence. If you're a believer here tonight, He's right in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here they were having that orgy at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And here comes Moses down. And he throws the tablets. You see, one of the things Moses was saying, man cannot keep the law. We're in capable of keeping God's commandments. It's too hard. They're too structured. We're sinners. These are sinless tablets of stone. They're perfect and good and right, but we can't keep them. So a second set was given to Moses, and these were put in the Ark of the Covenant. That ark has so much going on right there, right now. If that lid was not on the ark, that lid was not there. Be very dangerous. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, this chamber. There'd be a big curtain just hanging here. We couldn't go in it. You and I couldn't go in it. Would have to be the high priest chosen to go in it. And they would tie some bells around his ankle and a rope in case when he was in there because of the presence of God, he might be struck dead and they would have to pull him out because nobody was going in there after him. Nobody. So you have the cherubim. We see the cherubim in the Garden of Eden. After man fell, cherubim were guarding the tree of life, wielding a sword. Think about it. And, that same, and those same cherubim are displayed on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And between the two cherubim that are facing each other with the wings going towards each other is the mercy seat. 
that we're going to look at in a few minutes. But if it wasn't for that lid covering, nobody could go in there. The power of God was present in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. We see the things that God has done with the tablets, with the Aaron's rod and with the manna. But also there we see the rebellion of man. So the presence of God and the sin of man are there. What's going to happen there? What's going to take place? How is this all going to be resolved? And that's what we're going to look at as we continue here. Let's pick up with 21 again. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember, the writings of the Old Testament gave the promises of a coming Messiah. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Notice now, the righteousness of God, how does it come? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through, I think of the doorway. He's the door. He's our access to the righteousness of God. If we don't go through the door that He created through His Son, you can't go. There's no place to go. There's nothing that will satisfy except the door that was created where we have faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. And notice that God did this back in verse 22. It was God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who put out there the avenue for us. Think about that. There was only, he had to figure out how he was going to allow you and I into heaven because of our sinful nature. How was he going to do that? How was he going to justify your sin and my sin and the world's sin? There was only one way. Through faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did. And notice we're justified freely Freely, by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Three words I want to look at briefly. One is justification. The second one is redemption. And the third one is propitiation. Now justification, you get an image of a court of law. 
guilty, found guilty. But justification is there's no more guilt. You're justified. How were you justified? Well, if you were speeding and Pastor Cop Joe pulled you over and gave you a ticket and you paid the fine, you would be justified. You were no longer guilty because you paid the price. Redemption. Think back of Paul's day. What was being redeemed back in Paul's day? Well, one of the things that was big was slavery. So you got the image of a slave market. How do we apply that to you and me? Think about slavery to sin. And that we're redeemed, we're bought back, we're bought out of slavery to sin. But how were we bought? How were we justified? What price was paid? It says it was free. There was no cost to us. But there had to be a cost. It's no freebie. Because justice had to be satisfied for justification and redemption to take place. And then we have propitiation, which was a religious term. It's an appeasement to God through a sacrifice. It's an atoning sacrifice. It's an atonement. It's a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and regains His favor. That's propitiation. There was a split but here's a at one. You're at one again, that atonement. There's an at one because God has accepted this sacrifice in order to repair the damages that were done as a result of our sin. Continuing in verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Thought this was a great picture of Jesus. It's a mercy seat for you and me between the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, that mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle the blood and make a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of all the nation, Jesus was our sacrifice. He was our mercy seat. He brings us at one with God who we sinned against. That we have a debt to pay, he paid it. We got a freebie. With his death, he brought us back from slavery. We're no longer slaves to sin as a result of Jesus' death on the cross. Because he was one with the Father and he was obedient, and the Father said, 
Son, I want you to go to die for the world that I created that has rebelled against me. And Jesus said, yeah, Dad, I'll go. I know you're going to work all this out. I'll go. I love them too. And he came down. And for 33 years, he was on this earth. And he became our mercy seat. He became our sacrifice for our sins. I want to close on the next, uh, this part of this verse. Notice where it says here, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, forbearance is an action of refraining from exercising a legal right. It's refraining from exercising a legal right. But there has to be a debt paid. In other words, there has to be an enforcement of that debt paid. But notice there was a Passover. He passed over the sins that were previously committed. What does that mean? Did they never get paid for? No, they did. But see, you and I have a great advantage that we can look back at Calvary. We can look at the New and the Old Testament. You know what I mean? We, we have the whole book here. But the Jewish people, the Old Testament saints, they only had the Old Testament. But they put their trust in the promise of a coming Messiah. They put their trust in the promises of God that their sins too would be eventually forgiven. Remember the sacrifices they did, slaughtering the lamb and putting the blood on the altar, that was covering their sins. But when Jesus came, he's not covered their sins and your sins and my sins. He's washed them away. He's put them into a sea of forgetfulness. They're as far as the east is from the west, which means they can never meet. They're not there anymore. So this is what our God has done as a result. So when Jesus died on the cross, remember he descended into the depths of the earth and set the captives free. Who were those captives? They were the very ones who had put their trust in the promises of God who were set free. So their sins were paid for based on the faith they had in the coming Messiah. We have faith in the crucified, risen Messiah who we know will come back, is coming back one day. So we have a different perspective, but yet it's by faith. And in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he might be just. See, God has to be just. He can't let anybody slip through the cracks. So he is the judge condemning sin. You and I, if we trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he became our justifier. He's saying, come on, you're my child. Because your sin, which is definitely your sin, I put on my son. 
As verses say in the Scriptures, He became sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus became sin for us. He knew no sin. He was perfect. He was the unblemished Lamb of God. And as a result of what Jesus did, you and I now, as we trust Him, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's not our faith that saves us. Jesus Christ saves us. And we're putting our trust in Jesus and what He did at the cross, the finished work. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Old Testament saints, one example, put the blood on the doorpost when they were being led out of Egypt. The Good Shepherd is carrying you and me now in the New Testament by the power of His Holy Spirit. Verse 27, where is boasting then? Can you boast about your position in Christ? Can I? What have I done or you done to get this salvation? By your works? By my works? By good thoughts, bad thoughts? No. It has nothing to do with you or I. It has all to do about Jesus. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Verse 29, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In Galatians 3, 24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Dear saints, you and I are no longer under the law. The law is good, it's perfect, it's right. We can't keep it. We are now under the law of the Spirit of God. Through faith in His Son, and through His work and through His Spirit in your hearts and my heart, He's bringing us to the point more and more like Jesus. The Old Testament saints had the examples like Moses with the sacrifice of the Lamb. We have not only that in history, we have the cross of Jesus. And better than that, we know where we each individually came from. If you have the living Savior in you, you know what He has done in your life. You're the best evidence of the reality of the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. From where you were to where you are today and where He's going to take you in the days, the weeks, the years, and throughout eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we just think of your unselfish love 
how much that You just loved each one of us, that You would leave Your throne in heaven to come down to a world